Reminiscences of a Liverpool Shipowner by Sir William B. Forwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chad Horner from Ballyclare in County Antrim, Northern Ireland, situated in the northeast of the island of Ireland. Reminiscences of a Liverpool Shipowner by Sir William B. Forwood. Chapter 1 The Passing of the Sailing Ship. The old sailing ship, with all the romance which surrounds it, must long linger in the affectionate regard of all British people as the creator of our great overseas trade and the builder up of our commercial prosperity. The sailing ship was the mistress of the seas for centuries. She founded our maritime supremacy, was the conveyor of the first fruits of our manufacturing industry to the ends of the world, and enabled us to train a race of sailors unequalled for their skill, courage, and patriotism, who, in times of national peril, protected our homes and safeguarded the freedom of the world liverpool owes her greatness as a city and her position as the first port in the world to her shipping possessing the only deep water haven on the west coast she naturally became the port of shipment for the manufacturers of lancashire and yorkshire directly our export trade began to develop the beginnings of the shipping trade were small for in seventeen fifty one there were only two hundred and twenty vessels belonging to the port the opening up of the american trade in seventeen fifty six gave a great impetus to shipping it was destined however to receive a serious check by the world-wide war which started in seventeen fifty six and was waged almost continuously for sixty years the first of its long series of wars known as the seven years war seventeen fifty six to seventeen sixty one was followed by twelve years of peace and it was during this time that our trade with america made its greatest headway the war of independence with america which broke out in seventeen seventy three proved most disastrous to liverpool it paralyzed our trade and there was dire distress in the town it is recorded our docks are in a mournful sight full of gallant ships laid up and useless this unhappy war lasted seven years but perhaps the most terrible period for our shipping was in eighteen ten when america feeling herself crushed between the upper and the neither milestone of napoleon's mastery on land and england's supremacy by sea declared war and threw her strength into privateering the result to the trade of liverpool was most disastrous the number of ships entered the port fell from six thousand seven hundred and twenty nine in eighteen ten to four thousand five hundred and ninety nine in eighteen twelve when in eighteen fifteen peace was again brought about there was a most rapid recovery in business in every direction our british arms which had been victorious in the great war on the continent of europe had also made our country supreme at sea foreign shipping had almost disappeared and our shipping trade reaped an enormous advantage our tonnage rapidly increasing the period from eighteen fifteen to eighteen sixty may be termed the halcyon days the british ship and the period from eighteen fifty to eighteen eighty witnessed the passing of the sailing ship with the passing of the sailing ship we have lost many interesting and attractive features the attitude of the shipowner has entirely changed his quiet leisurely occupation has gone and with it much that was picturesque and gave pleasure and enjoyment with the advent of the steamer a new era opened up characterized by the hustle of increased activity speed is the criterion aimed at calling for constant and strenuous work the shipowner of the golden days had time to take a deep personal interest in the upkeep of his ship he strolled down from his office almost daily to the dock where she was lying of the sixty-four sixty-fourth shares into which the ownership was divided he probably owned at least one-half 
this gave him a very real concern in his ship's welfare he watched and supervised her construction with the same solicitude as he would the building of his own house and when completed she took up her loading berth in the prince's or salt-house dock all fresh painted the rigging tarred down the ratlines all taut and evenly spaced every rope and hawser carefully coiled down and in its place it was excusable if the owner viewed his ship with some pride a large poster displayed in the ship's rigging announced the port for which she was taking cargo and the date of sailing a date which was never kept she remained in dock week after week while her cargo gradually trickled down this long delay involved a loss of interest in earning power and also a serious loss of interest to the owners of cargo shipped by her mr donald curry when he left the canard company made up an ownery of five or six ships for the calcutta trade and was anxious that jardine skilmer and company of calcutta should take the agency at that port but they had suffered so much from the delay of their cargoes that they made it a condition of their acceptance that mr curry should strictly adhere to his advertised dates of sailing and certainly he had no cause to regret it for particularly jardines loaded his ships with their own goods and mr curry's fleet rapidly increased this was the beginning of fixed days of sailing from liverpool which are now almost universal although the pleasure of a shipowner was more personal and greater in the days gone by it was accompanied by much anxiety and the risks were greater than those of to-day a wooden ship was liable to decay and the periodical surveys by lloyd's were times of much concern they might expose some defect which might involve the stripping and rebuilding of the part affected the highest class at lloyd's a one for thirteen years soon ran out and the continuation of the class always involved many repairs the preparation of a captain's instructions prior to the commencement of a voyage entailed much thought every contingency had to be provided for there were no cables by which subsequent instructions could be sent or the owner consulted cargoes at the loading ports were uncertain and the change of ports in ballast had to be provided for the most carefully worded instructions often failed to provide for the very contingency which happened or more frequently the captain did some stupid thing the owner was in dread lest his ship should find no homeward cargo and have to shift ports or lest she be damaged or dismasted and put into some remote port not contemplated in his instructions he had visions of heavy repair bills and bottomry bonds sailing ship owning was profitable to those who possessed high-class ships but i cannot recall many fortunes made out of softwood ships the cost of their maintenance and repair being so heavy in a brief resume of the history of the sailing vessel it is not necessary to pass in review the early steps taken in the evolution of a ship for shipowning did not assume a position of any importance before the year sixteen hundred when during the reign of queen elizabeth the east india company was founded the east india company's first ships were vessels of from three hundred tons to six hundred tons they were all heavily armed and only conveyed the cargoes belonging to the company the john company was highly successful and at the close of the eighteenth century had not only a large fleet of ships but also possessed a large portion of the continent of india the ships of the company were remarkable vessels they were frigid built large carriers and stately looking but badly designed very slow required a large quantity of ballast and their cost was about forty pounds per ton involvement in design and equipment was very slow there existed no incentive to improvement the profit made was derived mainly from the cargoes they carried and it has been said that the improvements made in british shipping 
from the reign of Queen Elizabeth to the Victorian era were so gradual as to be perceptible only when measured by centuries. When we speak of the ships of the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, we cannot but be surprised to find how slight were the improvements made during these 300 years. During the latter half of the 18th century, the finest ships were constructed in France, and at that period the best ships in the British Navy were those captured from the French. The Treaty of Peace between the United States of America and Great Britain, signed in 1814, marks the beginning of a new era in the history of shipping. The progress, however, for some years was slow. Design and construction were hindered by our obsolete tonnage laws, which encouraged the building of a very undesirable type of ship. Meanwhile, America was going ahead. Not only did she produce more ships, but they were well designed and equipped, and it was the general opinion that the American ship was superior to the British ship. When, in 1832, the monopoly of the East India Company came to an end, and the commerce of the Orient was thrown open to all British ships, there was at once an effort made to establish British shipping on a broader and more substantial basis. The opening of the China and East India trades gave rise to that competition, which had been so long dormant, and without which there can be little incentive to improvement. The American trade gave the first and great impetus to shipowning in Liverpool. The famous New York packets, the pioneer Black Ball Line, were established in 1816. This line consisted at first of vessels of from 300 to 500 tons register. These little ships, with their full bodies and bluff bows, made wonderful passages, averaging 23 days outwards and 43 days homewards. They were for many years the only means of communication between this country and the United States. The dramatic line was started in 1836 with vessels of about 700 tons, and it is noteworthy that the Sheridan of 895 tons built the following year for this line was found to be too large for the Liverpool trade. But the trade rapidly grew and the packet ships gradually increased in tonnage. In 1846 the New World was built of 1,400 tons. As a child I recollect being taken down to the dock to see this ship as being the largest sailing ship in the world, and many still living will remember the Isaac Webb, the Albert Gallatin, the Guy Mannering, and the Dead Knot. The ships of the Black Ball Line and the Dramatic Line were grand ships, and made very wonderful passages. There are three outstanding events which greatly contributed to the improvement of British shipping and may be said to mark the beginning of our great maritime position, the establishment in 1834 of Lloyd's Register, the founding in 1846 of the Marine Department of the Board of Trade, and in 1849 repeal of the Navigation Laws. These laws, devised originally for the protection of British shipping and to secure for it a certain monopoly of the carrying trade, had become antiquated and a hindrance to its development. It was not, however, until we found the commerce of the world was largely being carried by American ships, which were faster and better built, that an agitation was started to abolish those laws. There was considerable opposition to their repeal, and the first result was not encouraging. There was a decrease in the tonnage of British ships entering our ports, and a large increase in foreign tonnage, especially of American. And although this created a feeling of despondency, and gave rise to the fear that we had lost forever our premier position in the overseas carrying trade. It really proved a great stimulus to enterprise and renewed exertion, and not many years elapsed before we had regained, and more than regained, our position in the shipping world. To America belongs the credit of introducing the clipper ship, 
which was specially designed to make rapid passages. The discovery of gold in California created a great rush, and there was a gigantic movement of human beings by land and by sea. The land journey across America was long and hazardous, and this gave rise to a large emigration by sea, and the necessity for providing a class of ship which would be able to make rapid passages. This the old-fashioned, frigid-built ship was unable to do. The era of the clipper ship may be said to date from 1848, when gold was first discovered in California. The building of these ships in America proceeded rapidly, and in four years 160 were built. They were the swiftest ships the world had ever seen, making the voyage from New York to San Francisco in from 100 to 220 days. They were remarkable for their fine lines, lofty spars, and great sail-carrying capacity. The discovery of gold in California in 1848 was quickly followed by the discovery of gold in Australia in 1851, and a rush of emigration immediately set in, which had been carried by sailing ships. The regular traders were small vessels with very limited passenger accommodation, so shipowners very quickly turned their attention to the clipper ships built in New England and in New Brunswick, which had been so successful in the Californian trade. The first clipper ship constructed for the Australian trade was the Marco Polo of 1,622 tons. She was built in 1851 at St. John's for James Baines and Company of Liverpool, and she was the pioneer of the famous Australian Black Ball Line. The Marco Polo was a handsome ship built with a considerable rise of floor and a very fine after end, and carrying a large spread of canvas. She made some remarkable passages under the command of Captain Forbes, and did not hesitate to shorten the distance his ship had to travel by sailing on the Great Circle, and going very far south. The Marco Polo may be said to have set the pace in the Australian trade. She was quickly followed by such renowned ships as the Lightning, the James Baines, the Sovereign of the Seas, and the passages of these ships created as much public interest as those of our Atlantic Greyhounds do today. We had also the White Star Line of Australian clippers, which owned the Red Jacket, the Blue Jacket, and the Chariot of Fame. The Red Jacket made the record passage of 64 days to Melbourne, and was one of the most famous of the American-built clippers. Although America can claim to have introduced the clipper ship, our English shipbuilders were not much behind, and the tea trade with China offered great rewards for speed, and the ship landing the first cargo of the new teas earned a very handsome premium. The competition was therefore very keen. These tea clippers were very beautiful vessels of about 800 to 1,000 tons of quite an original type, and unlike the American clipper, they relied for their speed more upon the symmetry of their lines than upon the large sail area. They had less beam and less freeboard than the American clipper, and as their voyages necessitated a good deal of windward work, this was made their strong point of sailing, and probably they will never be excelled in this. The names of the Falcon, the Fiery Cross, the Lord of the Isles, will still dwell in the memory of many. In 1865, a memorable race took place between ten celebrated tea clippers, and the evenness of their performances was remarkable. The times of the passages of the first five, from the anchorage in China to Deal, varied from 99 to 101 days, and the prize, ten shillings per ton, was divided between the Taiping and the Ariel, the one arriving first at Deal, and the other being the first to dock in London. There were similar races every year which always aroused great interest. The greatest development in sailing ships was brought about by the substitution of iron for wood in their construction. 
the iron ship among other advantages could be of larger size was more durable and less costly in maintenance and in eighteen sixty three a notable further improvement was made when in the liverpool ship seaforth steel lower masts top masts and top sail yards and also standing rigging of steel wire were introduced and about the same time double top sail yards were adopted we are apt to make light of the great increase in american shipping since the late war and think that the competition of america will not last and will not be serious we should however not forget how large a proportion of the world's carrying trade by sea was done by america prior to her civil war in eighteen sixty three and the excellence of her ships the tariffs she imposed after this war killed her shipping and made shipbuilding except for her coastwise trade impossible the result of the late war has been to make the cost of shipbuilding nearly as great in this country as in america and she will certainly make a serious bid for her share of the trade with the passing of the old sailing ship we have lost much that was picturesque and much that appealed to sentiment the river mersey at the top of high water filled with sailing craft of all kinds from the great australian clipper down to the dutch galliot or the british sloop with her brown sails presented a panorama which has no equal to-day and called forth thoughts of adventure and pearls by the sea which a great atlantic liner or even the modest coasting steamer failed to suggest although they may speak to us in the spirit of the times of that security and speed which has brought the very ends of the earth together this short sketch of the old sailing ship days would be incomplete without alluding to the position of the sailor which was far from satisfactory his life was hard and very rough he usually lived in the forecastle which was close and damp the chain cables passed through it to the chain loggers below the hose pipes had often ill-fitting wooden plugs and when the ship plunged into a head sea the forecastle was flooded there was no place for the men to dry their clothes and no privacy their food was salt tag and it was no wonder that they enjoyed their nodding of rum these were however days before we had the luxury of preserved provisions or ice-houses but the old british tar came of a hearty good-humoured race i have seen them when off cape horn take marling spikes aloft to knock the ice off the topsail and merrily singing one of their chanties while they tied in a close reef the pay of a sailor was small three pounds a month for an a b and when they returned home from a voyage they were pounced upon by the boarding housekeepers who did not let them out of their clutches while they had any money left the neighbourhood of our sailor's home was a perfect hell a scene of debauchery from morn to night the sailor had no chance and when he sailed again he had no money to buy any decent or warm clothes thanks to such philanthropists as the late samuel smith alexander balfour and monsignor nugget this reproach to liverpool was after a great and long fight removed and the interests of the sailor are to-day safeguarded in every way by the board of trade and greater interest is exhibited in his welfare by the shipowner while thus recording the conditions of a seaman's life we must not forget that the conditions of life generally were much harder and rougher than those of to-day and the sailor had many compensating advantages when at sea it was while he was in port that he required safeguarding. End of chapter one. The passing of the sailing ship by Sir William B. Forwood.